You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Welcome back to the Stateside Podcast. Today we have a very special guest, artist manager, uh, founder of Lesser Manners Management, a friend of mine, a colleague, an all-around juggernaut. Welcome to the show, Joe Morrow. Hey, thank you. Wow. What a what an intro. Never been uh, referred to as a juggernaut, but I will gladly accept. Well, that's how I think of you. I think of you as a juggernaut. You do it. Very good. I hope that's the uh, word mm-hmm. on the street. I hope that gets around. Well, before we, we get into the show here, you had mentioned my hoodie. It's pretty good, right? It's uh, fun- it's fantastic. It's the first time I think I've seen it outside of a mock, you know, mm-hmm. like a PDF. So it looks great. Uh, it looks great there in all three yep. dimensions. And um, glad you picked it up. I, Appreciate yeah, man. It. We, we support. Hope you enjoyed the show. Oh, it was incredible. God damn it. Those guys are so good live. They are good, yeah. One of the best, maybe the best. Yeah, they 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 are really up there as one of the best. They're also <clears throat> the wonder. We're talking about the Wonder Years for those listening. This is an audio based show. I should remember that. <laughs> we're yeah. So J- Joe here manages the Wonder Years among uh, many other bands. I so I saw the Wonder Years last night at the Crystal Ballroom in Portland, Oregon. Hung out with Casey on the bus. We had we had a great time catching up, and then they take the stage. And I had this overwhelming sense of, I don't, I mean, just totally impressed with this band of, uh, what, 18 years? Yeah, maybe just shy of that. But yeah, somewhere, I want to say 05. It, it, the, the start date is a little blurry because it was such a literal, you know, kind of joke band uh, for at least the first year. But yeah, I would say around 18, 17, 18. Well, first of all, it's rare that a band lasts that long. We can just full stop there. Secondly, it's even more rare that a band that's been around that long is doing as well as they are now. You could argue they're doing better now than they ever have. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like they're just, they have a moment. No, we have the numbers and we spoke to, uh, just about a week ago, um, you know, we get ticket counts once, twice a week kind of thing, maybe three times a week. And one of the latest ones, Dave Shapiro, the band's booking agent for the entire time, so the whole the whole time, said, hey, this is on record the the most tickets ever sold for a headlining Wonder Years tour. So congrats. So that feels great. And I will have to say, without giving away too much, I don't know when this airs, but I think we're going to beat it on the next tour. So it is it is a really great thing, you know, let's just for the sake of argument, say 18 years in to see not only growth, but like kind of sustained, not plateauing because every band, everybody does kind of hit a plateau, right? But like a really comfortable, sustained spot of just slow and steady growth. Yeah. You mentioned Dave. He, he's my business partner, co-owners of Stateside Management with me. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I was texting him last night about the show and how impressed I, I was with the show and, and the turnout. And we were talking about, you know, just generally how, you know, what we're talking about right now, how successful they are in this moment of time. But more importantly, it's not like it's a bunch of 40-year-olds at the show. They're there. I'm one of them. 
mm-hmm. you're you're seeing like 15 year old kids that are just now discovering this band. It looked like it's always looked at every show I grew up going to. You know, kids that like they're in their full I'm going to a show outfit. You know what I mean? They're full emoed out. They got the makeup on and like their favorite band tee and their the gaggle of kids hanging out and singing every word. And I'm just like, what the fuck is going on here? This is this is a, a total vibrant scene that, like you were saying, it has legs. And I, I would I would be very surprised if the next tour they do isn't even more successful as the one now. Thank you for noticing all of that. Um, it is it is certainly honestly it, it's it's somewhat shameful to say this, but having younger folks there is of no um, like approach of of the band and I or even the labels really like. The obviously like during the pandemic and and pre and post the big move to TikTok was on every labels and every manager and everybody's mind industry wide and 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 every industry right. But at no point were we like we gotta make TikTok content, you know, to reach these younger kids. We have one, like we quite literally just took the the name so that we have the handle. The label did all the things to get it verified and all that fun stuff but we have never used it uh we don't go out of our way to post instagram or you know just content in general we we create content we have photographers out we're, we're conscious of it we want people to know what's going on but we're not going like you know it seems like younger bands have content people out with them before they have a merch person which hey that could be uh, that could be the great uh, best the uh, wise decision but that was never the way it was growing up for me or the guys in the wonder years you know it's like you take care of your merchandise and then your sound and then your text and then your lighting you know all those things before Con- there's content people on every tour now but it's never ours it's rarely somebody we hire it's just like the younger opening act so how that's happening I- i'm not quite sure i know i'm in a lot of the fan groups and i see a lot of the fans are looking to buy merch for their babies or their toddlers or however it may be. So it's kind of good, just good to see, you know, a band that's kind of reaching several generations at this point. Um, it's it's rare. And it's something that I, I think we want to try to identify and maintain. Well, I mean, can you identify what it is or is it is it just the magic of music? I mean, it seems like total random chaos, and some bands have it, some bands don't. If I managed a young band, I would encourage them to do a ton of content too. Like, full stop. Why wouldn't I? But I think at the end of the day, a good record, a good band, being really good live, and also playing a type of music. Like, the Wonder Years, they just they ooze nostalgia. And it's not in, it's not in the, like, nostalgia only for people that grew up listening to the Wonder Years. There's a... What am I trying to? It's hard to explain. It's like nostalgia that is now. <laughs> like you listen to one of their new songs and it mm-hmm. sounds like something you grew up listening to. And I don't know what that is, but they're so good at doing that. I just think a, a big portion of it has been due to the fact that the band has made very conscious decisions to not challenge their audience, but to say, hey, here's what we're doing now. It might not be exactly like what it was two records ago, or even the last record, we're always going to be the same six guys making music together. So there's always going to be a, you know, that DNA baked in. But I, I do think 
Whereas, and I would never name names, but there, you can obviously see sometimes when a band has popularity, they go, okay, here's the sound that people like of ours. Do not stray. Keep doing this. Do this as long as you can. And also, and also sometimes I feel like the, the band sometimes don't have the capability or maybe it's not in their, maybe not the capability is not the right word, but it's not in their wheelhouse necessarily to, to do much, to do anything other than what they do very well. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the One Years have always been a band that have, I think, after the first two LPs, has started to sound evolve each time, you know? And I do think that has been helpful for the longevity of the band. There are people who do not like certain records or like other records better than others. That's totally par for their course and natural. But I do think having had done that as a conscious decision to grow with your audience only makes it a stronger and more... Um, I guess it's loyal and I think something that people can can connect to at any point in their lives. They can put on, you know, uh, Upside Suburbia, which at this point have came out 11, 12 yeah. years ago and remember that for nostalgia's sake, you know, when they were in high school or maybe, or put on the newest album and say, this is a, a record that's a lot about the things I'm living through right now. Uh, yeah. Parenthood or... The, you know the global situation and what we're facing in the future you know it's it's the band has not shied away from growing up with their music and their audience it's incredible and you know what my, one of my clients steve evitz obviously produced their last record the, the most current the hum goes on forever and they're they're that that is a great partnership i think the, the band and steve have really come out with something that it's so hard to achieve that. And, um, it's just, it's been really fun to watch and, you know, it's, I just love it. I love, I love getting to know you. Yeah. Steve has yeah, done three of their records, three of the records, I think. Uh, in change. change. Yeah. Plus, uh, one offs here and there, like, you know, one of the ones they just did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I just got the only on this, um, latest recording, Back in September, well, gosh, when was that? September of 21. Um, they were recording out in, in where Steve's previous studio was. And only then did I really get to hang with Steve. And I grew up, you know, in New mm. Jersey, loving his records. And he was at the top of my band's list when we went to record. But we we went a different way. And 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 that was a fruitful and, and nice relationship, too. But that was always Steve was like the guy in uh at the time then and, and now. now oh yeah i mean uh it's interesting you know i i manage other producers that have like a strong following and a strong sound and a, and a presence in the industry but steve has something very interesting i i've seen it i've watched bands fall over themselves to to get in touch with him and it's because he has been single-handedly a part of some of the most influential records that i at least for me and a lot of my friends oh yeah for an entire um not just a generation of of a of a music genre but, but for an entire like all-encompassing several genres that i would all nest under like alternative <laughs> alternative rock right and but steve has done hardcore records he's done metal records he's done like straight up emo uh records pop punk records he's kind of been a huge cornerstone in in that world that you and i work in or at least i certainly work in <laughs> yeah absolutely well also one last thing on the wonder years other than writing good songs having good lyrics that people can uh, 
associate th- their own lives to. One thing that I've noticed about the band, look, every band argues, every band overthinks, every band has ego. But from my limited interaction with, with the guys, they seem like decent people to each other. They're a family. It, and j- the same way you are with your siblings, sometimes you want to fucking kill them. But I watch it happen. I was on the bus and I saw how they engaged with each other. There's a there's a level of respect and a, a veteran aspect to what they do that young bands really should take note. I think you're exactly right there. I mean, yeah, I will not ever, and they don't hide behind the fact that they will argue all the time. But those arguments also, as they get older, they, they have less gas in them, you know, now. They, they, six guys, six very, that's a lot of people to begin with. It's not like you're working with a three-person band where it's like, you know, there's you have six guys and you have six honestly at this point incredibly different personalities as they've all grown up i'm sure those personality types were much closer linked when they were all in literal two different high schools together but as people have grown up and gotten older and gotten into different things and moved away from each other um, that has only the gap has only gotten larger so but i think what they have now that they didn't have back then when they probably did try to have fist fights was a level of professionalism that is hey we do we do this as art. We're artists. We create, but we also are a touring band that is a business and has employees just on the road. More people than are in the band. You know, like there's the six of them, but there's also seven crew members at any one time. Plus the agent. Plus myself. Plus the you know the other people who are all involved on the label or publicist side. And it's not like that that's at the forefront of their minds of saying we have to keep this thing going because of that. But it's they are very conscious of the small but healthy industry that is just the Wonder Years Touring LLC. <laughs> that's right. It's a beautiful thing to watch. So congrats for being a part of it. And, um, you know, to, to young man, because we have a we have a interesting audience base, people. Um, heavy into production, obviously. I, I manage producers and engineers, so we get a lot of that. But people from all around the industry like to check out the pod and really just sort of an entrepreneurial um, fan base as well. And so, you know, I, I think our audience can learn a lot from you specifically. There there are a lot of young managers out there. That's what they want to do. They want They want to work on our side of the industry for whatever psycho reason they chose to do that where did you get started in all this how long have you been managing bands how did that all begin it's a tough one because i guess technically from the minute my band had any the band i played in had any interest from other people so the i i was one of the you know i went to high school with ace enders we started bands together that band those little projects eventually became what was and then is and is now the early November. You know, there was there was we had different iterations of that band, but for the most part, the core members were always Ace, myself, Jeff Cummer, the drummer, Sergio Nello, the bassist, and then Bill Lug, who came in on the second record. So from the get-go, we were signed by uh, Drive Through back in '02, and we were like literally grew up on a farm. You know, I'm from a town called Hamilton, New Jersey, which is known as the blueberry capital of the world. I literally grew up on a farm. Ace and I worked at McDonald's together, like incredibly, I don't want to say humble because it was like rags to riches or anything, because that's not the case. It was just that we knew nothing. You know, we were isolated from the rest of 
basically like what was happening in music in New Jersey. That was all happening up north, like kind of where Steve was making records, the Saves the Day, Midtowns of the World. That was all up north. The census fail who were our contemporaries. Uh, we were down way South Jersey, having no clue about anything. The only band we knew were the starting line, who were called Sunday Drive at the time. And they were signed to drive through before us. Uh, so kind of right away, I was the one who would settle shows. I didn't know what it was at the time. I was the one who, when we got signed, read through the contract and tried to understand it. And even though we didn't really know what we were doing, it was always kind of, I was interested in that side of things. I would look at the back of records and look at labels and publisher names and start piecing together all of these kind of this web of things that happen behind the music, you know, labels and booking agents names on the back of things, you know, and that would kind of set in motion what we were doing. The early November didn't hire a proper manager because we, because we essentially did it ourselves, but that was, you know, I'm not patting myself on the back, but that was mainly me <laughs> doing it back in 2003 or two and three. And then we finally hired a proper manager in 2004 after releasing an EP and a full length on drive on essentially a major label which at that time it was under MCA, pre-Geffen days. So we did it all just ourselves. I, I had a lot of help. The label were very helpful. The agent, which I'm, st I'm still friends with, with the who was the agent at the time. He's still a very active booking agent. And all these people just kind of told us and helped us what to do. They all had similar backgrounds, somewhat coming from DIY or punk. And that is essentially how I still do things today. Why, why do you think you were that young man looking at the, the back of the, the record and, and digging into really like the administrative side of things? So most artists didn't give, don't give two shits about that side. Why do, you, why do you think you were drawn to that? I think I romanticized it. Again, growing up in a very small town with, you would have to, before I had a driver's license, I'd have to like beg my parents or older sister to bring me to the nearest town that had a record store which was 40, 45 plus minutes away. And even that was only a Borders, a bookstore back back in those times. And that had that's where I could maybe get a copy of an Alkaline Trio record or a Promise Ring record. So I started to just romanticize the hypothetical like DIY scenes that these bands were a part of. And then you just start to see, you know, back in those days, know how old you are but if you're anywhere near 40 you might remember pulling out um you know these records would come with a mail order catalog or at least like a little you know five by five thing that says okay you like this one you might like this band and i'd say oh hot water music I wonder oh, yeah. what that is and yeah you know and i would mail order you know cash in a, in a thing and get these things so i as much as i love the bands and they were always at the forefront I also just love the idea of these little labels curating these individual scenes, you know, and I just would romanticize it. There was a label, I don't know if you remember, it was called Big Wheel Recreation up in Boston. And I was so, it, they signed bands like Piebald and they put out one Jimmy World okay. EP. And so they had really great taste. I remember emailing the guy and saying, could I tour your office i'm going to be in boston i'm going to take the first trip of my own i was 17 can i tour the big wheel office he's like no it's my my dorm right. room what it's office not what you yeah, think yeah, it yeah. is yeah it's it's not what you think <laughs> it is this he's like you could you could we could you could come to a show you know like i was just i just thought it was this like scene of people like-minded people working 
in this little scene of music. And I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, that's so rad. And as you're talking about that, I think that's what happened for me too. I think that's probably what happens for a lot of us. I remember the first time I really, you know, one of the things I love about going to, like I'm going to NAM in April. NAM is more of like an expo show for products in the industry. So, you know, it's not for everyone, but I, I do recommend that everyone goes at least one one time because it has become what everything is these days where it's just a big meetup for the industry that you work in. So I, I, I do recommend whether you're a musician, manager, someone a label, whatever, go, go to NAM. I love those meetups. I went to the Grammys this year and the year before. Things like the Grammys, NAM, uh, even just big music uh, festivals, like when we, when we were Young Fest, hanging out backstage with all the people, you get a sense that you actually work in a real industry. It's not just these isolated islands of our own. Joe Morrow is in PA doing his thing out of his home office. James is in Portland doing his things out of a home office or a Starbucks. For my, I'm, I'm always at a Starbucks all day. That's something that I remember thinking similar to you when you were young, when I was young, that that was that was so exciting that this was a real thing. <laughs> like it, it wasn't just a dream. It wasn't just like bands were doing this just for fun. I mean, having fun and creating art is obviously the goal, but but attaching myself to a real thing, a real scene, a real industry is something that always excited me. It, it excites me still to this day. And I, I would recommend anyone that wants to work in the industry to remember that part of it, that it is an industry. If you want this to be your job, treat it, act accordingly, treat it like a job. Like you would never show up to a day job late. I mean, I guess you would, but you're going to get fired if you're, you're repeatedly late or if you show up fucking drunk or if you just don't give a shit, you just zone out all day. You're just not going to move up. So yeah, man, I, um, I, I just love hearing how people get started. So something I want to go back to, you were talking about the region that you grew up in from your assessment. Cause you grew up out there. I didn't, I'm a West coast guy. What is, what the hell is going on in PA, New Jersey, Massachusetts, that, that little area, especially I'd say the PA, New Jersey border. What the fuck is going on out there, man? Why are there so many bands and so much industry and scene? I mean, from where I'm standing, Joe, there's only really a couple of towns now that like are the music industry towns, obviously Los Angeles. Nashville used to be New York City, but not really. And then the PA, New Jersey area. Like, wh in your from your assessment, wh why do you think there's so many great bands from that area? I've been, I've thought about this before. I've been asked it before, and the only thing I can really think of is like the proximity to these major major cities is very helpful. So, and also because like you know you go out to where you're from. Uh, you'll drive all day in your, you go, you, you're still in the same state, you know, California or just driving up the coast is a massive undertaking. And there's not a ton between the major hubs. You go over here, you hit, you could drive between Philadelphia. You can drive to DC to Boston in one day and hit DC, Philly, New York, New Haven, yeah. Boston, yeah, yeah, yeah. all like in boom, boom, boom. You could even hit Long Island if you really wanted to, right? And it, I think there's just a sheer amount of people 
in the concentrated over here. The suburbs have always been this like breeding ground for bands, which is why like rarely do bands come from Philadelphia or New York. Interesting. You know, they're usually based. They usually come from somewhere else and move there. A surplus of people, a proximity to some of the biggest cities in the country, and we also are lucky with the amount of tours that roll through any of the cities I just named. Right, we're getting. If you love a band, if you really, really love in insert band, let's say the Wonder Years, you could go to four of the shows on the East Coast, and it would be, you could go home right. each night, and right. it's not a stress, right. you know, it's right. no big deal. So I just think we got really lucky, um, geographically speaking. I would say that's probably the biggest portion. I don't know what happened with my with my generation of people because I can't I I can't really imagine there being a more active time than the early 2000s when everything was just firing on all cylinders over here crazy but it didn't feel it didn't really feel like that when you were when we were doing it either you know it was just oh wow this is cool you know but now that you know you see it come and go over the past 20 years which i have watched the little scene come and go and come and go you do notice when it's not there that's an interesting thing and i haven't actually heard anyone point that out that that seems like the obvious reason that America is such a huge place. And most of the states, to your point, take hours and hours to drive through. And the East Coast is as close to Europe as America ever got. You know, when when people first came over here, we settled in these little colonies and these small states. And so for one, states are smaller on the East Coast. And secondly, there's more people. The majority of the U.S. is still on the East Coast. I don't remember the number. It was a shocking amount. It's like Los Angeles has tons of people. It's, I think, 40 million people, which is fucking crazy. And, or, or California, rather. There's about 20 million in LA County. And then basically everyone else lives on the East Coast, like uh, percentage wise. And I think you're on to something that, yeah, just the proximity to all those cities isn't something that I grew up with. Living in the Northwest, I mean, Portland is <laughs> down the road. Portland's a town. It's a big town. It's kind of a city. There's sort of a downtown, but it really is just a, it's a town. And then there's Seattle, which is three hours from where I live. So to your point, um, bands roll through Portland, but lesser these days than ever, which I have noticed. Maybe it's because Portland is going down the hole. I don't know what that is. Maybe you can fill me in, but I'm, I'm seeing less and less routing through Portland now than ever. Even back in the day when I first started touring, Portland was a city we got to probably every, I don't know, every yeah. third tour that kind of right. thing. Like you didn't always include it because just to get that far north, just to do the Pacific Northwest, you're adding like four days to your tour because totally. yeah. you're, you're disconnected from the nearest major market, which I say would be the Bay Area probably like the biggest major market that isn't the Pacific Northwest. And then once you're up there, where do you go? Boise, you know, like Spokane, you're kind of like you're removed from kind of the rest of the routing. So you have to route a day up and then the days while you're there and then a day out of it. So it is uh, logistically more challenging. It adds costs. It's never been the strongest market for what I'll call our version, our scene of music. Maybe if we were, maybe if I was managing the shins, you know, like it would be a different story or like more traditional indie. 
And I do have a band that is more traditionally indie who do play the Pacific Northwest more often. They do Doug Fur, whatever, you know, like they I was just gonna say I I was literally about to say Doug Fur. That's obviously yeah, they, where they play. Yeah. It, it is it is more it is it is a little bit better, but those are also smaller rooms. When you go in the crystal ballroom, it's like your your show could tank big time, you know, and you made a big yeah. trip to go up there. So that's the thing. It's not it's not because people don't want to. It's usually one of the highlights of any tour is the Pacific Northwest. Now I haven't been to Portland in quite some time, but it was always a highlight. I used to, you remember the Meow Meow? Oh my God, you are blowing <laughs> my mind apart that you know about the Meow Meow. Wow. Oh, first time I ever played Portland was at the Meow Meow. A band I met a band outside. I think they opened the show. I don't remember what tour I was on, but I think a band. The band that opened the show was called Anatomy of a Ghost. Oh my who are god! Now called, who, who are now Portugal the man? <laughs> no, no, no. Hold, hold on. This is like super Portland. Anatomy of a Ghost. My friend Dewey Halpus used to play in that band. He now does the Pure Pleasure podcast, with a massive music podcast. And uh, yeah, so yeah, the guys from Anatomy started Portugal. Meow Meow is as Portland as you could possibly get. That that was the dive club there. The vibe I got from it was like this was the this won't make sense to anybody outside of philadelphia or like the region but like this was the you know it was like the diy yeah. punk room it's like the cbgb's oh, yeah. of that era you know kind of thing it's not no it's it's, it's long it's gone, long right? gone i mean i watched the dillinger escape plan and botch uh play a show both of those plant bands played the same night at the meow meow and i i thought the club was gonna burn to the ground like not because someone was lighting it on fire, because there was so much energy in that room and kids were just clawing at the walls and just pulling the, the curtains down. Like it was it was fucking mayhem. And Portland Portland has always had an isolated, like logging town vibe. It fucking rains eight months out of the year here. I mean legitimately eight months gray rain. And that'll fuck with you. I think that's why there's so many bands from here, especially loud mean bands and it, it's funny that like the shins and the decemberists that's what a lot of people think of portland but you got to remember that like grunge came from portland you know the kind of depressed like i'm gonna sludge and make a lot of noise came from here and it's because of that that vibe so anyway yeah i i love that you know about the meow meow because that is that's the Portland I grew up with, the Meow Meow Satyricon. That's like the the punk rock, uh, heavier side of Portland that maybe a lot of people don't know about. I am not a young man, you know. I've been I've been around a few years. <laughs> Me neither, man. I'm turning forty in July, and it is just an absolute mindfuck. I turned forty late last year, November. Um, yeah, and it's uh, I didn't think it would matter. No, it, it doesn't. doesn't really. Like I don't feel any different. But you, it is a milestone where you're like, there is no one on earth. I don't care if you're a hundred years old who looks at a 40 year old and says, that's nope. a kid, you know, like up until, you know, you're, you're at this point, no matter who you are, you're like, you are, yeah, you're an adult. Yep. <laughs> 30, you can get yep. away with that. Some 80 year old can be like, oh, you're a kid when you're 38 yeah. years old. But at, once you turn that, that fourth decade, I don't think anyone says, eh, you're just a kid. <laughs> no, you're, you're officially an adult and everything is on your shoulders. You're absolutely right. I, I have changed my mind or, or my mindset rather on age. I used to really get anxious about it and I hated getting older. I hated it. Every year I, it depressed me more and more every year. And something happened when I turned 38 
that that was the switch for me a couple years back and I, I I decided that it is ludicrous to get upset about getting older. It's obnoxiously offensive to those who haven't that weren't lucky enough to turn 40. I'm sure you know a lot of people that died young. I know a lot of people didn't even make it to 30. And so for me to complain about turning 40 is insane. It's totally crazy. So I, my my new thing is like, fuck yeah, dude. I'm still here and I'm happy. I'm, I'm not going to be one of those people turning 40 with a bunch of regrets. I love my wife. I love my life. I love my job. I'm not destitute. I have a great family life. I'm very, very blessed. And that's a good thing. We should be celebrating that. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I think it, you do start looking at the future differently where you're like, okay, I should probably like start getting the back half set up yeah. in a way. Yeah. Whereas like, you know, and let's say 20 to 40, it's like you're just getting to yeah. 40. You just got to get yeah. that far. And then once, you know, granted this is a generalization, but if you're kind of in a fortunate enough spot, and, and as you just said, in, in, in the way that I am as well, you can now say, okay, I, you know, first half is essentially done, not in a in a, in a a morbid way, but now you can start looking to, okay, well, what is, okay, I'm going to, because the first 20 years they go, we're talking about tours that I did 20 years ago that feel like they were just a couple years ago, but in fact, it was 20 years ago um i've been doing this you know pop punk emo indie adjacent alternative music world now for 20 years that's several people you know don't work in any one thing for that long and now i look back on it differently than i did just a couple years ago i look back on it and i say wow this has been a even when i hated this industry or i hated the scene that i felt trapped in I don't look at it that way. Yeah. You know, I spent a long time trying to get to a different world of music or escape music altogether. And now I look back on it and I'm just straight up like, wow, this little scene that we basically created in VFW halls and basements has provided like 20 years of sustained, wonderful career slash art slash experience. You know, it's a very, I, I start to look at it very differently only in the past probably year or so. It's amazing, man. Should be proud of that. And it's um, it's yeah. interesting because I did the same thing. I I tried to get out of music because it's it started becoming depressing. You know, I played in a band that no one ever heard of. You know, seven people heard about my band. We had some good tours. You know, we we hopped on some bigger bands. We had a moment. It was it was fun, but it's fucking tough, man. And eventually, I just got tired of being tired. You know, I got tired of being broke and I tried something different. I was a firefighter for three years. I, I was a structural inspector at an Intel campus here for a long time. I did a bunch of diff- different stuff. And I, I I recommend to young people to, you know, don't... Music is great and art is great, but it's not everything. And instead, try to create a scene like you guys did. You know, that that's something you're going to be a lot more pr- more proud of than just making it in a band whatever that fucking means do that try it and then maybe do something else come back like it's always going to be here and if you really love it you're going to find your way through it me being a producer manager is something i didn't even really know that was a job (laughs) in my 20s it's a very niche thing it's still it's still something that i'm trying to figure out and 
you know, luckily for me, it's working out and I'm scaling and it's great. But, you know, I, I, I kind of stumbled my way to this point. And yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing what we do. It's not, it's not for normal people. It's tough. And you need to do it because you love it or else get, get out that, you know, <laughs> you don't have to complicate it. Yeah. I was just going to say, it has to be like, you have to come from a place of like pure love for this thing. And the, the, when I, like, when you asked the question about growing up in it and like, you know, what was it like from the area? It's like, the, it wasn't only love. It was like, I need to be involved mm-hmm. in this somehow. Me too. So I would just, you know, anybody, even people who would probably, who have probably are still looking at cases of CDs that they made as a little indie label, I thought they were like, I thought I was talking to like Jeff Bezos kind of yeah. thing. Like each Dude, person I met. It, this is so funny you're saying. This is exactly how I was too. It, yeah, you're right. I would, I would like, I would glamorize the act of just being broke just to put something out that you believe in or loved or whatever. I would, I didn't realize there was a way to like make actual. You know, it was like a wonderful part of of coming up in the early 2000s, 2001, 2002, was that there truly, the, the scene of music, it wasn't big. So the fact that I and my friends, and not just me, I'm not here to be a martyr of any means, but me and my friends and the bands I was in or the bands that we were friends with wanted to be a part of it so bad, knowing that there was really no room for growth means something. It wasn't until the breaking of newfound glory finch yellow card fallout boy did anyone think there was any money left in this because my favorite bands at the time you know the, I'll, I'll point to the promise ring were that was one of my favorite bands or alkaline trio you know for a fact those guys got off tour and were bartenders because they talked about it it wasn't it, they toured in shitty vans that were way worse than anything we toured in. I toured with Hey Mercedes and they would tell us about the stories of when they were in Braid. You know, the it was a different world. And then they then the world turned got turned on to the music that they were a part of and more money started to get injected into it. And then you're like, oh, you can make a little living off of this for an X amount of time. Yeah. Never did I think it would be it would last 20 some years, let alone, you know, companies built around it. <laughs> no, never. I'm with you, man. When I was 17, I played in a band and we toured. So we played a couple local shows with a band called Super Drag. Do you remember Super Drag? Oh, yeah. No, I loved, I yeah, loved that, Super that, Drag. That was more. Regretfully, yours oh, is a fantastic yeah, album. You are speaking my language. So I'm like the Super Drag, Weezer, uh, Failure, Hum kind of guy. I that, that was more my thing. Love all, Love all of that stuff. Yeah. So then there's a band called Shiner. Have you ever heard Shiner? I have. Don't don't know if I'm a if I've ever listened, but I remember seeing the 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 LP. Shiner is one of my favorite bands of all time and one of the most influential bands. I'm I'm blessed enough to be very close to all of them because when I was a kid, we so we did a couple shows in Northwest. We got a t- like tiny bit of traction when we were, were kids. And uh, we got on a couple runs through the Midwest with Shiner. And we even played a couple shows of that band, Hum. And and it was the same. I remember the feeling of like, okay, when I'm meeting these guys in China, I'm meeting like Motley Crue. 
Like these are fucking rock stars to me, actual celebrities. And then I, then you realize they, yeah, they're like working at a pizza shop when they're home in Kansas city and they're bartending and they're normal ass people in a 15 passenger van with a trailer playing little clubs around the, around the country. And to me, that was like, I look back on it now and it's, it's fucking insane how long those guys kept at it. And now they're like, they're fucking legends. You know, they play shows now and tours and they do really well because they are that band that influenced so many other bands. I totally identify with the like thinking of, of people in the industry when I was young as something so much bigger than it was. And then, but it, but it was, you know, like, but it was exactly. <laughs> and it turned, yeah, yeah and it somehow it was. It. I have the, yeah. your story about China reminds me of a story uh, and a weird feeling that I never really thought of identified until just now. The early November second tour ever. Second, well, I would probably third tour was opening for Further Seems Forever and Elliot. Elliot being the Louisville. Yeah, I remember band that band. Who had just put out, they were, uh, they had put out False Cathedrals and it was one of our favorite records in the world. And we show up first day of tour and clearly we're the band that has the bigger label because we, you know, with that initial signing, advance whatever we had a sparkling new 15 and sparkling new gear and here's a band that meant the world to us pouring in a thing that was barely getting to each show and i felt this me and i remember me and bill having this like we shouldn't have it this good you know like we feel bad the guilt over basically them laying bands like them and them laying this groundwork that allowed this scene to start to open up to the the industry as a whole and i kind of felt bad about and they would they were nice but they would be like yeah you guys are on your label sucks you know like you're on this <laughs> label that's like yeah killing the the scene that we're a part of and it felt a little yeah. bad to to do that it's weird how fast things started moving i'm just gonna say post 9 11 like i don't know if that had anything to do with that but the scene kind of started to, the late 90s in uh, indie emo world, punk world, really kind of opened up wide right at the turn of the uh, that millennium there. I mean, there's a lot of things lining up, but the internet and like MySpace culture, you know, that was a big, a big moment for bands. Dude, I remember my band playing. So we did a MySpace records contest. <laughs> It was like us, mm. you know, up up against a couple other bands, and we were on the short list of winning a record contract with MySpace Records, and it meant the fucking world to us. And we really fucking tried for it, and we didn't get it. Um, thank God. I toured with a band who was on MySpace. Yeah, man, it was it was a big deal. Sherwood. Okay, yeah, I remember that band, dude. What a wild! It it was just a weird time because the late '90s. I remember everything back then was about like bootleg dvds and vhs even that's how old we are and i i remember watching like deftones tour vlog tour vlogs like basically documentaries that they did themselves like handheld cameras corn behind the scenes you know footage and like that was something that a lot of kids passed around you know, like the cky films remember the, the cky movies mm -hmm. that whole band margera and the bands that surrounded that scene that that was like the first version of social media before social media. And then 
and then the internet really took off and then myspace really kind of uh elevated a lot of these bands for for better or worse you know i'll let, I'll let history be the decider of that but yeah it, it was a, a a very interesting time to say the least i think i think bands that start today really do need to go all the way back like all the way back go back to the 50s to the beatles in the early 60s they invented it like no no bands toured that was even really a fucking thing they were the first rock band four guys let's get in the van let's fly around they invented that yeah you bring up a good point there because hello when, when i was in hello goodbye which was for about five years um quite long all things considered do you manage hello goodbye Sort of. Force is one of my best friends in the world now, and we loved being in a okay. band together, but it's really always been a one-person band. There is no manager, but I definitely come in and help out with the things that is like the stuff that's boring for Forrest, like publishing and like untying these. Because, you know, now we're going back 20 years of just that band of multiple multi-label, multiple publishers, multiple writers that have come in and out. So there's that band is more of a knot than some. And I we kind of just like untie it little by little just to get things as organized as they can be. Many managers, you know, he's worked with. So a lot of it is working, is just untying, but a lot of it is also just being him, him being one of my best friends. But um, we had this little tradition where part of it was just because it was funny, but the other part was like truly to, as a reminder to be, to remember where you were there, we would listen to the, oh, what's the name? Oh, Get in the Van by Henry Rollins. Oh yeah. Yeah. If you've never read it or listened to it, I recommend yeah. everyone do it, especially people who tour in, in literal vans. Right. And they talk about how rough it was for, for Black Flag, like the routings that Black Flag would do were insane. And then they're fighting yeah. neo-Nazis like by the day because the punk and hardcore scene in the 80s was literally gang warfare. <laughs> like, Oh, I don't think people fully under... I, so, yeah, I was talking to someone in early 20s recently. I won't name them. But they were blown away by my stories of how bands used to do... How, how they used to book their own tours. I don't think they fully appreciate that we would get on a telephone, uh, like a landline. I remember my band would just lie to clubs. We were like, yeah, we can bring like 50 to 100 people. Guaranteed. That's full full stop. We can do that. And they had no way of fucking verifying that. So they say yes. And we booked a month-long tour around the U.S. in front of nobody. But we yeah. did it. We got in the van. We fucking made it happen. When I started managing a band, uh, when I started managing Foxing back in 2012, they would... Um, they would sometimes be like, oh, it's so boring. Like touring is so boring. And I'm like, yeah, it is. But you're not going to get anything by me because A, I've been, I I did it for 10 years before your first tour. And you have a little thing called iPhones yeah. and Nintendo oh, Switches and all these. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I understand it's always going to be in perspective. But my first two tours, we had calling cards that I would use to yes. call my family and yes. then the booking agent the calling and say, card. here's what we did. And then we would fax in sound scans and then we would look at our road atlas and just get to the show. Hopefully. So I never, I never even had a booking agent. None of my bands were big enough to ever have an agent. So we did it all ourselves and physical maps. Okay. So now we have to get to uh, yeah. fucking St. Louis in January, which is really not a great idea. Yeah, you're you're onto something, man. It was it was very analog. We tended to like the Choice Hotels brand. Obviously, we would stay with people yeah. when we could sleep um, in the van. But sometimes you don't. And we had this uh, 
choice hotels, which own like, you know, uh, quality in and all that shit. They had this book. It was basically like a phone book of all their locations, but by mile marker, by state <laughs> and mile marker. So this is, you know, you couldn't just like price line. Oh, cool. 45 bucks tonight. I would just call and be like, do you have vacancy? And they're like, yeah, we have three rooms. I'm like, okay, can you please reserve those? We'll be there in 50 minutes, you know, whatever. Yeah, and yeah. just you get there and they're like, sorry, sold out before you got here. Yeah, and, yeah. Or or the rates, whatever they want it to be, because there's no price comparison. Oh, no, no. It, it was the Wild West. Look, I, I think you're right. It's all relative, you know, bands 20 years from now, you know, the bands doing it now in 20 years, they'll be seeing like, oh, bands today, they have no idea how easy they have it. But, they'll be like, you yeah, toured? You, toured? <laughs> you didn't just yeah. do it all, all, all as an, all as an avatar? <laughs> I, I know. I remember you, I, I used to have the same dream. It's hard to explain, but I used to dream this of somehow like touring, but reverse. Instead of the band having to go out and travel, somehow you could have people come to you. And I always had this dream of like, like the map moving that way. Like, you know, Chicago somehow would come to me and we could play to, instead of us going there. You know what I mean? And like, that's, mm -hmm. I always, I'm always uh, looking forward to the technology you know, when we can figure that out. Well, we got a little touch of it back in 2020 to yeah, we did. with all the yeah. live streams that popped up and wonder years did three and i'll tell you what they aren't fun <laughs> you know like, no they suck they fucking suck they're cool but from a consumer like it was cool i done i did them with about three of my artists and it was all rewarding but you did see as soon as things start to stable out a little bit the diminishing returns of people engaging with them too the first wonder years one i think there was like I don't know, 10,000 people. Oh, yeah, totally. Second one, 7,000. Third, five. And then by the last one, I think we did like 1,700 people. <laughs> 100%. No, I mean, there was a few bands that did it right. The band Pussifer, you know, Maynard from Tool, that project did a really cool live stream during COVID. And it was just really artistic. They did it outside in like Joshua Tree in the desert and, you know, a lot of art fixtures. And it was it was wild. It was super trippy and fun. And that, that's different. That was kind of a fun, basically a concert documentary. And they even had like kind of a storyline. That that was really fun and interesting. But just setting up a couple cameras and streaming it at, from a room with some lights, no one wants to see that. Yeah, it gets a, it gets a little tired. Um, we did that with the with Foxing is we we kind of made a film. You know, it was all pre-recorded. It was many different settings and many in costume changes. And it was... You know, and I'm really, really proud of that piece, and the band's really proud of it, and that'll live on with or without any kind of pandemic relatedness. You know, it's just its own piece. One hundred percent. Yeah, Four Year Strong did a good one too. Did you ever see the Four Year Strong uh, holiday special they did? No, but I can probably. I wonder if it's available now because now we're at the point where we're just releasing them all. You know, they were yeah, they're just putting them out. the paywall. Now we're just like put them out there. <laughs> yeah, I think it's still up on the Pure Noise website i think and oh, cool. that was that was brilliant because they're all silly gooses I, I manage alan day and oh, nice. uh you know that that was that was really funny they did a lot of like you know they're wearing sweaters and all i want for christmas to be able to tour again and like you know fake snow and it was really really quite clever so that you know and i th I still think bands can do that you know instead of just posting random content on tiktok i think if you did interesting performances and you told a story, you get to know the band a little bit. I think that 
I think there's something there still to this day. I do think it'll be part of most of my album marketing rollouts moving forward. I do think there is something to be said about it where it does work when convenient and not a massive, you know, because they could also cost a lot of money real fast if you're depending on the scale. Um, but I do think that having done enough of them and having seen the response, I do they'll stick around. I think it's a valuable piece of the picture. And now we have a multiple, multiple platforms to host them on, probably too many. I get emails from them still all the time, but uh, yeah. Well, I I also think post COVID, um, people want real life experiences now more than ever. Like I I'm a massive Disneyland fanatic. I'm just a total hopeless dork for Disneyland. All of these posters in the background are all different lands in Disneyland. I'm total fucking dork. That's a Mickey watch on the wall right there. Um, anyway, that whenever we go to the park, it's it's shocking how busy it is and it's not just families with kids it's dorks like me that are adults with no kids running around disneyland and the people just like real experiences now you know at the wonder show I, I kept thinking about all these kids have tiktok on their phone and they're 15 16 year old kids who are pretty used to the, the social media online world especially in the COVID era but boy do they fucking love being out with their friends and watching a band do do their craft in front of their eyeballs. Nothing will make up for that. Yeah, I realized I I realized that pretty quickly when things were so dicey there for a while. It's like, eh, is anyone going to have an appetite for live music again? Because the reality is, in certain areas of the world, it still has not rebounded the way it has in most other yeah, places. Europe I know. is pacing much further behind. Well, at the club level, they've always been a festival culture over there. But there's been, there's other reasons um, that you know the the European market has moved slower. The whole thing feels more secure uh, in the fact that like this isn't going anywhere for a long time. There's always going to be, you know, I, I started managing a newer band uh, just in November called Sweet Pill, and it's like it to me. It's mm, um, I like that band. Yeah, there it's and it's also like great, I went to band. some of their like Philly DIY book shows, and I was like, oh yeah, this is exactly the way it looked ten years ago, ten years before that. Yeah, yeah. Sound Talent books them, right? No, um, they are at TBA. Oh, okay. Which was a COVID, you know, one of the, all the agencies started to shutter or they were- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And TBA is one of the new boutique agencies that arise out of the paradigm collapsed. Figured it out, yeah. (laughs) Well, good for them, man. That's awesome. Well, anyway, uh, okay, we've been doing this for a while. I, I got a couple more questions for you, my man. What makes a good manager? Like what, what makes a, a good artist manager? So many different things. I've thought about this a long time too. Um, there's so many ways to be a good manager. Um, and I don't think anybody can or should really be able to hit all of those things. I knew managers who were really great networkers, right? Like they played right. that role really well. They were, they lived in New York, they ate and breathed. Uh, the music industry, you know, the Brooklyn music industry of a couple years ago, but they lacked in some other areas. I won't say which, which, but um, some are contract and industry specific, like robots, right? They just, yeah, like they're almost they lawyers. Un- yes. Yeah. They understand the, that side of the, the industry really well. Some like you and I, or come, or I'm not saying that you're not good at other things, but I come from the oh, artist I'm not. side, so I feel I feel like I have the um, the empathy that 
sometimes comes with that. And I'm really excited about marketing and rollouts and how to get creative with the artists to, to not just say, here's our new music. It's like, no, like what else can we do? And I have plenty of wild marketing ideas that we've done some successful some not successful but it's that to me is where is what i like to do the most or where i have a strong suit obviously you want to be well-rounded you want to be well liked um but so yeah i think there's there's a number of ways to be a good manager um you try to do the most you can but um i think recognizing the things that you aren't great at is also a big um yeah plus how do you how do you handle that how do you handle the the things that you maybe not super strong at? You um, you know, I'm not the most. I'll be the first to say that I'm not, I'm not the most. I'm organized, but my system of organization is is good for me and not so others. Yeah, so I'm I'm a I'm a little bit clo- I'm a little bit eager more eager to say, hey, we should maybe bring on a bookkeeper or a business manager. I will handle it for as long as I can, but until I realize I think I'm doing you guys a disservice with your own, you know, the LLC or the PNL is when I think we should maybe bring on some help, right? So that's that's a quick thing. I feel pretty equipped at the industry side of things, the contractual, the published, you know, the the the, the inner workings. I feel equipped. I don't feel like I'm the best, but um, you know, that's why we have that's why you bring in attorneys, but I don't like to engage attorneys until like I have a really good understanding of what we're negotiating. Then you right. hand it over, right? Right, um, right. Uh, one of the big things now, uh, is Sweet Pill, you know, I'll use them as an example, is co-managed by me and my one of my oldest friends in music, a guy named Kirk Harrington, who lives outside of London. We've been work- looking to co-manage something together for years, but never really figured it out. He is one of those managers who is just... So good with the, um, I don't know what to call this side, but like he is so analytical. I guess analytical with when it comes to like the numbers. Yeah, I'll be very much of like, ah, cool, the show did great, and he'll be like, ah, could have saved fifty dollars on this because didn't see that because he comes from tour management world. This is why he's he's a longtime tour manager. That's his thing. That's I've tour managed, but I'm more about like, hey, hey, promoter, do we have a good time tonight? Great. Yeah. I'm not going to go through every single receipt. I'm going to be the first to admit it. Right. You're not going to cut the fat on everything. Did we hit points? Awesome. Great stuff. He's like, we could have made 40 more dollars. And I'm like, I'm glad you looked after that. (laughs) I know. So Kirk is really good with those things. And I think we make a really good team so far because- I'm looking at a picture that he's not necessarily looking at and the picture that I'm not looking at. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Well, that's, that's a good lesson for anyone listening. Triple down, quadruple down on your strengths and be very honest with yourself about your weaknesses and, and find help from people who can fill in those gaps. That's what I'm doing. This is an age old question, Joe. When should a band or artist get management? Okay. So I think you should know what a manager does. And I think that's across the board. Know what a booking agent does. Book a tour by yourself first so you know what they do. And know what they don't do. <laughs> exactly. Know what settling a show looks like. I think in management's the hardest one because it's the vaguest of all the pictures. It's anything and everything and nothing, depending on how the band is. But like definitely be as DIY as you can for as long as you can to understand what it is that you could use help with so that you could focus on on music. It's almost the same way of getting involved in management, right? 
if people don't know how to get involved, it's like, how can I help? And then go from there. You know, when bands are young, the manager could be booking shows. They could be the publicist. They could be putting up, you know, they could be wearing a lot of hats. So the more, the most you can do by yourself to understand what it is that you could use help with, the more beneficial it'll be when you do bring on a manager and you'll know that they're worth their commission, whatever it may be, 10 to 15 to 20%, whatever. One thing I always tell producers that, that reach, that hit us up, um, say it's a really young producer and they're just starting out. They don't have a, a large discography yet. A lot of credits. You know, they, they often think that I'm a booking agent, that it's my job to go quote, find you work to like, make your career happen for you. That's not what a manager does. That's not what a band manager does either. You have to be the wonder years. And don't take this the wrong way. I think you would agree with me. The wonder years will be a great band with or without you. That's the whole fucking point. 100%. It would be lunacy if, if it were dependent on one manager guy. That's crazy. Now the wonder years, they can focus on what they're good at when they have you they can excel and scale and grow and have room to breathe when they have you. That's, that's what a good manager does. They reverse engineer everything they don't have. Yeah. I, I think, um, from my point of view, a producer or a band, it's all, it's very similar. You don't, you don't need a manager day one. That's crazy. Don't like <laughs> pick a band name and write two songs and then go get a manager. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but that's, that's how I feel about it. I think you need to go cut your teeth for a while figure it out, do it all yourself. I'm sure there's instances where somebody has been on from day one and they, they're still there. You know, I'm sure there's sure, some, sure. these success stories, but that's probably the minority of band and artists and manager relationships. I have very close relationships with every band I work with to where I'm very, I'm not selective in the fact of like, what is the music? What is the art? It's like, obviously I'm, I'm a fan if I'm even interested to begin with, but I get really involved and also involved in their as a friend and as a you know and that's a that's a tough line to walk walk sometimes you got to be careful so it's kind of if i'm if i'm going to get involved and i told even with kirk i was with sweet Paul, i was like i don't know man i just don't know if i like have another one in me and then you meet them and you're like yeah you know we we gel and 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 that's a good time to come in is when the band is already has enough going on to where they can, you can actually do something for them. That's it. You need something to manage. They can't create it out of thin <laughs> that, air. It I sounds, don't want to do that. <laughs> no, you can't create out of thin air. No, that's, that's that's not a thing. You and I don't have the magic mu music industry button to just press. If I could, I would. I'm like, And now, Steve Evitz, you get the next Foo Fighters record. And Ryan Lewis, you get the next Justin Timberlake record. If I could do that, I would. I have never met anyone that can't maybe... Uh, you know, Jimmy Iovine or something. There's like 1% of the industry that has that kind of power. I am not one of them and I never pretend to be that person. To any band or producer out there, if there's a manager out there saying they can do that for you, either either they're fucking lying to you <laughs> and run for the hills or, or the opposite. Fucking sign with them immediately and stop talking to Joe and James. Like, leave us in the dust. But from my experience, that is, um, it's a fucking lie. And yeah, there's, there, there needs to be something to manage. And secondly, I would say an artist or a producer or, or any entity that has a manager, you need to be manageable. You need to go along with the program. You need to be a partner in this thing. You can't just put your hands up and go, 
make it happen for me now, manager. And, or, or I'm just not going to include you. I'm just not, I'm going to still do it all myself. Uh, you know, I'm going to box you out of this thing. Yeah. You're my manager, but I'm going to still really be controlling all of this. That's also not going to work. Yeah. And you, and, you know, one of the people we mentioned earlier, one of my best friends, he, he is semi unmanageable in the best possible way. You know, he needs help with what he needs help with, but he's going to do everything else his own way. And I love seeing it work. And that's the, and I go, great. I just, I'm just, I've never, I would have never given you this advice, but you you're doing it anyway and you're making it work. And that's so cool, but it's not necessarily something that I think I need to be in the weeds on because I don't know where you're coming from (laughs) with some of these ideas. But I'll help when you need to get a hold of ASCAP, you know, or whatever. Right, right. No, I I totally agree. How important is networking in the music industry? This is a tough one because I'm very bad at it, personally. I bet my guess, Joe, is you're better at it than you think you are. Well, yeah, you know what? Probably, but I'm also like, I have one thing going for me. This is I've just been around a long time. Right. That's good. Yeah. You know, we were talking about some stuff in my very first tour ever. I met Dave Shapiro because he was playing drums in the band, and I met Eric Tobin. These are two; these are people that I work with every single day, still to this day. And that's that's kind of more of a testament of like, yo, we all fell in love with the same thing, and we're still here, and that's awesome. Networking, I've never been; I get exhausted really fast. I have left management companies or slash not gotten my agreement renewed because. And, and no one was ever mean to me about it, but they just said, you, we just feel like you're kind of like you work on an island, you know, like, and I go, I truly like it best that way. I am happy to get on the phone or Zoom or whatever, but I'm rarely the first person to initiate. I wish I was, this is a thing that I think we were talking about a bit ago, what makes a good manager. I wish I was a little bit, not necessarily better, but I wish I had a bit more appetite for it. It is important, but I also know managers who, for a while there, I was talking to the guy who managed, um, doesn't manage anymore, but managed Bon Iver, right? So this guy- Not Bon Iver? Not Bon Iver, no, no. But like this guy was with an artist who literally won a Grammy for album of the year. And he was a notorious, he worked in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, notoriously introverted of a, of a manager. Did not really, he was sweet. And I think now he's involved in politics, but he was a really sweet guy and really nice. He wasn't hanging out at a house of vans or what's the other, not house of vans. What's the one in, uh, that's all around the country. That's like the exclusive club, you know, that people hang out at. Um, I forget. Yeah. Like in LA and shit. Yeah. I went to one in New York recently and I just feel out of place when I'm just around a bunch of industry people. I'm just like, I'm one of you, but only because I stopped playing music, you know? Okay. So I- I'm, I'm gaining a lot from what you're saying here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're one of those people that, and I, I, I would include myself in this category that I, I try to put the horse blinders on and I just go, I, I trust my instincts. I trust my intuition and my experience in music. I, it's one of the things I trust the most. And I don't really look to the left or right of me. And I don't, I frankly, I, and I, I'm not trying to sound arrogant. I just, I don't really give a fuck how it's quote supposed to be done because it's all bullshit all of this industry is just made up la la land shit anyway so i mean i i see that you're you're pretty good at just doing this 
in your own way and sort of being the island, like you said. But the reality is we both, like, I actually do like networking. I, I like schmoozing. I, I'm a chatty Kathy. I don't, I don't mind that part of it. I know that exhausts some people. It doesn't really exhaust me. I, I like talking to a lot of people and going to the, the hangs and stuff. But if, even if I didn't, like, you, you know a lot of people. I know you now, and I know that you, there's a lot of connections to a lot of these people, and it's because you probably toured for as long as you did, and you were in the scene as long as you were, you inadvertently, without even trying, did a fuckload of networking. And, you know, you, you just said in, like, day one, you met Dave Shapiro and Derek Tobin. That just naturally happens. That is networking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I guess the question is, like, n- not so much... How important is it for you to like go to the functions and cheers with the with the dudes and you know the people in the industry and schmooze? Not so much that, but how important is it to make the connections with other people? Connect connections and and like real relationships. You know, like I feel like if I didn't, if I started, if I pivoted and started working in insurance tomorrow, I would still be friends with with some of these people. You know. Like right. that's where I think it's important. There's plenty of people that are just that work in the same industry that as long as you're okay with, you know, you, you, it's, you can, you can chat all day. So that yeah. all that stuff is incredibly important. And again, kind of like with my new perspective, new, not, let's say, not only new, but like with this, like the perspective I'm trying to encourage for myself is this, like, these are humans. These are real connections. These are in a way, friends and yes yes i try to approach almost everything that way i i never like yeah sometimes a manager's job is to be the bad guy in a sense or to say the thing to the party that the band doesn't want to say like yeah we don't of course. like this offer we don't right. like how you're rolling this out yeah i'll find a way to say it that is that is not going to be super aggressive or a war now sure that happens but everything can't be a war right you know yeah Right, 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 right. So, you know, that's, and that's, I guess, just my own way of like, you know, how, um, how I've kept sane doing this all this time. And also like, I can go to bed every night and say, I feel good about the way I operate in an industry that is very easy to operate unethically in. Yeah. Kind of jumping topics here, but it's related. (laughs) No, 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 it's all related. No, I'm with you and I'm tracking completely. I have a lot of thoughts on that. I mean, I think it for me, and I'm just as guilty of this. When I was younger, I, I noticed that I was, quote, networking with people and trying to connect with people because I wanted something from them. <laughs> to complete, be very sincere. I wanted their their access to the thing or I wanted whatever it was. And I think if you go into networking with that mindset, you've you fucked up. You made a mistake. Instead, do what you're talking about. Like go into this thing just trying to make friends with people. Like uh my my partner Matt Anderson, when they started Sound Talent, he said it was, you know, like their mission statement. They're trying to kind of come up with like a company a quote, a mission statement, and he said, "Look, I just want to do cool shit with my friends." And I think that's um that's it, man. That's that's it at the end of the day, right? We could do yeah. whatever the fuck we want in our life. And I want to get up in the morning, get out of bed, being stoked for what I do, and knowing that I'm 
surrounded by like-minded people that are actual friends. And I think if, so if you go into it with that mindset, ironically, you're going to get all those kind of, I want things from people naturally. They will just, the fruit will bear for you. The, 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 the natural order, the music industry gods will provide for you. If you just go into this with a sincere, I want to make connections with people and then good things happen. Yeah. And, and there's also a level of remove all of the bullshit and just realize and remember that we're just facilitating bands or artists, whatever, to do this thing that we grew up loving, playing shows, making music. If you go like, I have a real distaste for like posturing, you know, here's a, you know, when we, when we send an offer to a band, we're sending a, a fair, what we think is a fair offer. If you don't think it's fair, let's counter, but let's, let's remove all the, the posturing, right? Yeah. Well, we did, right. you know, there's, you can really get full of this industry is full of bravado and I have uh, very little bravado. So much. Yeah. Um, and it's just a matter of like, listen, it's very simple. It could be very simple. Do you want to do this or not? Let's remove all the other stuff and let's agree to something and then go have fun. And, and that's it. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's a, like a, 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 I don't know what to call it exactly, but like a commandment in, in my sphere, in the lesser matters sphere. It's like, like literally we have it. It's not a big deal, but it's just like, just be cool. Like, let's just be cool with everyone else. Not that's it's not be cool as like be hip. It's like literally let's just be cool, and and everyone will have a better time. Um, be kind. Get more yeah, done. Dave Shapiro talks about it all the time. He he's like no, there's no asshole allowed in this company. There's none none of that. You can't go around being a a dickhead to people. You can't do it. It's not allowed. We don't work in something that consequential that you have to be an asshole. Or this is an international no. policy. Fuck no, man. <laughs> you know? No, no shit. Amen, dude. Dictators were playing shows. <laughs> Amen. And, and also, like, everyone should pat themselves on the back. I always say this, but if you earn, and I mean this, if you earn $10 a year in the music industry in any capacity, you should be immensely proud of yourself. It's fucking tough. So if you've carved out a little company like I did, or you carved out a band that could actually somewhat pay for your life. That's incredible. <laughs> so that that alone, you did it. You're a success. Be proud and act accordingly. Like, I don't need a lot from from everyone for the rest of my life. I'm, I'm really just wanting to make good connections with people and get the most that I possibly can for my clients in a good ethical way. And I'm sure you have plenty, you know, plenty of managers and agents who look at clients and deals and the industry as a whole as something to be conquered and to be on top, right? Like it's just about having the most, whether it be the the highest earners or whatever it may be, that has never been a motivator for me. Obviously we all need finances and, and money to keep things going, but my company had the best year of its of ever. And I, as a manager, had the best year ever last year. But I could operate in the year before in 2020 was the worst. You know, I could operate on 75% less if need be, because it's never been about just pure market share or, no. or money. Or we whatever. wouldn't it's do a, this if it was. Yeah. It's like, are we is everyone having enough fun and expressing themselves creatively? And are we all 
being fairly compensated, great. I used to get in trouble for not commissioning bands enough by other companies, but that's a different. I, I remember you saying that to me when we first met. You you said something about that. I thought that was so funny. That, yeah, that's a difference. So they'd be like, you got to commission them. And I was like, why? Their van broke down 30 times. You know, like they're not there. I can't commission. Oh, I, I've done it too. I mean, I, uh, when I first started too, like, you know, producers are calling like, dude, my, this fucking bill's coming through. Like, can you can you help me out on this commission? I'm like, of course, like well, we're doing this for the long run. I, I, this is not a transactional job that way. Um, okay. Last question. I asked this question to everyone and, and I want you to kind of, I want you to really think on it. So this is sort of the state of the union question. What is your assessment of the music industry today? Are you, are you honestly pessimistic? <laughs> I wouldn't imagine you were or else you wouldn't be doing it. Um, but I mean, g- generally, uh, do you think we're headed in a good direction? Do you think that everything has evened itself out post-Napster, post-physical sales of records and being almost non-existent? H- how, do you think we're, how do you think we're doing? What's the health of the industry? It's mainly optimistic, and then it, gets, it turns into a giant question mark, and I'll, and I'll try to elaborate, because I've been thinking about this too. As I mentioned, I've been having a more optimistic, far more um, positive outlook on things. A couple years ago, it seemed like, I would say 2017, 2018, everyone was like, oh, this Spotify thing has these playlists that are really, and then everyone went nuts about these playlists, right? Spotify came out in 2011, right? Or at least in the United States. And there were playlists, but no one cared. You know, like it was just like, cool, <laughs> sure. Because at, back then it was more focused on, they were trying to take down like the radio portion. People cared about Spotify radio because it was a Pandora killer than anything else. Then everyone went nuts about this playlist thing. And for a couple years there, uh, really good bands that I was working with or just knew of who weren't getting that attention were not getting any interesting opportunities and they were being kind of left behind. And that was a pretty dark and it was a relatively pessimistic time to be witnessing because labels just started to care about metrics. And then I used to, then I thought about it and I said, huh, you signed your first deal in 2002. Back then there was really no metric, but then it was, it was, it became, it was like ticket sales, you know, little scenes, micro scenes. Then it was like, okay, everybody cared about MySpace fans. Nobody cares about that anymore. Then it was like, okay, everyone cares about, you got to be on Facebook and you have to have like a big audience amount of likes. Well, nobody really even uses Facebook aside from the fact that they own Instagram, right? Like that's really why we use Facebook now, at least in my world. Okay. Then YouTube hit the world and everyone's like, we got to get views. Okay. Well, yeah, that's important now, but no one's really like copyright striking like they were. All right. Then it became Spotify. And now you're even seeing the Spotify monthly listenership or like you know that that number start to trend of like not matter that much we're all realizing it's a sum of its parts right just like it always has been well now what's the big thing it's obviously it's tiktok right well i don't know tiktok's not allowed for kids under 16 over a certain amount of time anymore that's going to go away at the end of the day i have been rejuvenated in my outlook by like we talked about the wonder years wow people are going to their shows more so than ever before. And now I look at a band like, I'm only using Sweet Pill as an example because they're the youngest band I work with. And I went to a DIY show in a bar's back, in a bar's garage to see them for the first time. And I said, wow, they're turning kids away. 
DIY lives, you know, punk will never die. So uh, this, this, it's going to be fine. However, here's where I have this. So I feel as a whole, it's healthy. It's good. Bands are making okay. more money than ever before because rights ownership is a conversation, is a topic of conversation like it never has been before. People are aware of what a master is. I didn't know what it was when I was 17 and Me signed neither. a deal for yeah. seven LPs to a record, to a label. Uh, people kind of know what these things are more now. Bands, artists are hitting Spotify and make and who own their own stuff and just be reacting at the platform for any number of reasons and making real money. It's crazy. So I think it's a really good time. Labels are, have to be get, labels are getting more competitive. The deals I'm seeing from the same labels 10 years ago looked very different. It was royalty deals. It was a smaller percentage. Now, out of the gate, almost everything's 50-50 at the bare minimum. They're trying to sign bands for two records instead of four or five, including options. Everything is starting to get a little bit more competitive. Downside is we it's everything is available all the time. So right. it's much harder to kind of make noise. That's not necessarily a negative that I'll that I'll harp on. It's just the, the, the nature of the era we live in. The thing that kind of concerns me now is I'm a little bit concerned about like AI, you know, like and where humans, the, the human role, maybe this is just reactionary because it's happening right now. But I do think there's a there's going to be a time in the in the somewhat near future that says this record was made is AI assisted. This one was not. And we're going to start to have to car carve out. What I'm seeing is just a, a separation of the industry splitting in two. We have like tech forward success stories, you know, things that Spotify thinks is great but doesn't necessarily sell tickets or doesn't necessarily have a core fan base of, of people. It's just as reacting on an algorithmic level, whether it be Spotify, TikTok, or whatever. And that music for all rights and purposes could be AI created, or it could just be artists who don't tour, who just say, right. We love right. And then I'm seeing a, probably not a sub, probably not a conscious, but a subconscious backlash. And you see DIY and house shows and garage shows happening more and more and more. Maybe that's a reaction to having been cooped up for two and a half years, right? Maybe. Maybe. But I'm seeing it in Philly, which has always been a great barometer for the rest of the country, in my opinion. It's always been a great barometer. We're not New York, but we're not LA. We're not Chicago either. We're kind of this like weird thing that exists on its own. And if it gets good enough here, it'll bubble outwards, right? That's how... Philly's like it's a sprawl. It's like the busy suburbs. That's that's yeah. why it, it is a good representation. And to me, it's always been a really strong barometer. And I'm really excited about what's happening in Philadelphia right now. It's good. People are packing out small DIY venues with bands that are doing five thousand monthly listeners. And I go, this is giving me hope that it's we're finally getting over the pretense and the hyperbole of just metrics. And it's coming back to. Let's just go have fun in a space. And what happens after that, we'll figure it out. How long this lasts, I don't know. <laughs> you know, that's I, for I, someone else to figure out. No, it, it is. And I, I all, all of what you said, I agree with, especially the, the AI stuff. I mean, look, I work on the production recording side of this cycle that is the music industry. You're, you're more, well, you're, you're in all of it too, because you're a manager. So you work with the record coming out, but you also work with the live side. Most of my world is the beginning of the story, which is making a record. 
and the people that make those records, the professionals, the producers, the engineers, etc. That's something that matters a lot to me is this side of the, the story. And people like Steve Evitz and Jay Moss and Alan Day and uh, you know Ryan Lewis and all the people I manage, they're going to have more of a role in this thing. Even if there's AI that comes out and produces and mixes and masters a record for you. Some pe- some bands will take that. And I wouldn't I wouldn't judge them for it, to be clear, especially if they don't have a, a big budget. It's it's just like everything. Now there's less gatekeeping and now you can be from the middle of nowhere and make a record all by yourself. You have a laptop, a couple of microphones, the AI thing can like mix it and master it for you. One of my clients, Jay Moss, made his own AI mastering software. He made something that's making his own job obsolete. At the end of the day, though, people are still going to want a human touch. Always. It will always involve, when it comes to art and creativity, there's always going to be a need for the expert, the, the plumber. You know, you need a plumber. At the end of the day, you still need that guy. And I think um, producers, mixers, mastering engineers, songwriters, performers, artists, even managers and even a label, we're all, you're still going to have a role for it because that's the human experience. No matter how much we get into AI and how much we have algorithms and Spotify takes over. Yeah, I, th- I think you're onto something. I think the DIY house show is a good metaphor for <laughs> for for the human experience. <laughs> I, I don't want to end it on what could be perceived as a negative or, or anything, but I do. Part of my rosier outlook has been to know my age and place in the industry and the bands I work with, their age and place. And I say, you know what? The, the idea of keeping up has been scary. And you know what? I'm, I don't necessarily think I need to. I don't plan on doing this forever. I've already done it, considered what most people would work almost like an entire career in one field. Dude, this, is, this has been a blast. Let, let's end it here. I think that's good. Good spot. Dude, super fun. I, I thoroughly enjoy talking to you. I think you are, um, I don't know, you're, you're, you're a deep thinker and there's a lot of ding-dongs in this industry and you, sir, are not one of them. Well, I appreciate <laughs> that. I, I really, uh, I haven't been described that either, but I really like that deep, that deep thinker. I do, I spend a lot of time thinking about the little world we all exist in. Yeah, me in too. In the world that we work in. So, um, yeah, I appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Um, yeah, I think we come from, I think we have very, I've, why I think it was so nice is that I essentially think we had very similar backgrounds as far as music goes and the way we approach it, which, you know, you kind of, you can, you can sniff your own, you know, in a way. So that's good to know. Yeah, totally. Well, Cole, man, let's, let's stay in touch. My, my guess is there's a lot of things we can do together professionally and, and, uh, for, for funsies for sure. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'll uh, yeah have a good rest of your day over there. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. 
Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. 